0: You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and look with me. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. We come to chapter 12 with just a reminder of the circumstances leading up to This text, we saw last week that David just sinned, a tragic, horrible sin of adultery, treachery, and murder. It's chapter 11. And now we find our way to chapter 12, verse number 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight, Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. And May we today see the truth found in this text. About seven years ago, my wife was returning from a trip at her sister's house, and on her drive home, she noticed that for whatever reason, whether it was the glare or rain, that she was having trouble seeing the traffic. And so she came home. At that time, I was out of town. And she just went to the refrigerator, and there was either a picture or something on there, just to check her own vision out. And So she closed her left eye and looked through her right, and it was perfect. But when she closed her right eye to look through the left, There was a huge black spot where there should have been vision. So she was, of course, troubled by this. And so she called me, and she said what was going on. She was going to see an ophthalmologist the next day, and I said, I'm coming home. And so she went to see the ophthalmologist, and right away, after looking at her eye, referred her to a specialist. And so we went to the specialist the next day, and he diagnosed her with histoplasmosis, which is when the... the, um, not the veins, what are they called? The blood vessels behind the eye rupture. It's not a problem if it ruptures on the side, but when it ruptures in the center of your eye, it's problematic. And so he said, you need to go to London. And of course, you know, you you have this black spot in your eye, and it's troubling, it's consuming, actually. As we drove out uh, to London, uh, she was concerned, and she started to go through all these scenarios. What if... This black spot stays forever. What if it spreads to my other eye? What if I forget what my kids look like? What if I'll never see their spouses or my grandchildren? And we, we run through this whole scenario. And, 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 I, and I said to her, I said, listen, what, what's your greatest fear as we go to this appointment? And she says, I, I, my greatest fear is that they're going to give me a shot in my eye. And I said, Kim, Kim, Kim. That is so barbaric. That is ridiculous. No one does that. No one would ever, ever give you a shot in the eye. So okay, good, I'm glad. That puts me at ease. We got to the doctor's office, he looked at her, he confirmed the diagnosis, and we said, Well, what's the treatment? And he said, Well, the treatment is a shot in the eye. (laughs) She looked at me and like, what? I'm not a doctor, Jim. Don't, listen, do not trust me for medical advice. It will not help you, ever, ever. And, uh, and it began a series of lots of shots in her eye. And to this day, seven years removed, the spot has not gone away. It is a black spot. And there was a time in her life when it was consuming. That's all she thought about. That's all she could see. Isn't that a little bit like life? The black spots that we are aware of, they trouble us. And at times, it's all that we really see, even in the minor things. Ever maybe go to church or go off to work and you're feeling pretty good about yourself and someone says, hey, you feeling okay? you tired? And you're thinking, man, I was really good when I left this morning. And and all of a sudden, that one statement just sort of stays with you. It's all you think about and you think, yeah, you know what, I think I am getting sick. I'm not feeling well right now. I, I ought to go lay down. It happens, and we we focus on those things. Last year, I was in a line, a receiving line at a funeral, and I was in line with my wife, and and then a dear member of our church was behind us, a man I truly respect, and I said, "How you doing?" He said, "Good." Small talk, and he said he said to me, "He said I hope next week we get our pastor back." I thought it was strange because I am his pastor, and I was there the week before. And so I just looked at him, and he said again, he said, I hope next week we get our pastor back. And I said, okay. And then he said this, because the guy who preached last week was not our pastor. That was a terrible message. And the problem was, I really thought the message that week was good. That was the problem. It's like, wait, that was, that was really a, a good, <laughs> I thought it was a decent message. And, and so I said, well, thank you, I guess. I, I And for the rest of the week, I'm I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that message must have stunk. It must have stunk. And there are times in our lives when not just the minor things, but the major things, are past situation you find yourself in. And all of a sudden, there's this black stain that if we're not careful, it's the only thing we ever see. In this text, this is a terrible stain for David. It is a black spot. He had committed a terrible sin. Sins, actually. And at this point in the story, it's as if he got away with it, but now Nathan shows up, and this black spot is going to be exposed, not just to David, Bathsheba, but to the entire nation. And we have to wonder... With that situation, how in the world, with all that David knew and what he hears now, how do you recover from that? Can you recover from that? And if so, how? Maybe you're here this morning, and there's some black spots in your life, and and you—they're consuming. They're glaring. And it's all you see, and you believe it's all that everyone else sees. Several weeks ago, I think it was, Kim and I were having a conversation, and she said to me about the situation with her eye, which hasn't changed, and it, it's probably not going to change, just accepting it for what it is, and God's grace is sufficient. But she said, Rick, you know, there's something, that blackness is there in the middle, but my peripheral, I can see. And she made this statement that there is beauty in the peripheral. I have to tell you something. This story, it's a tragedy, is it not? I mean, chapter 11 is just like, oh, David, David, David. And then chapter 12, it's exposed. And you have to feel for what's happening here. And it's as if this black spot will stay with him the rest of his life. How in the world do you recover? But I want you to know something in this story. There is beauty in the peripheral. And the beauty is called grace. It's grace. And maybe we read this story and we think of this story and all we see is a black spot in David's life and it's there, we know it's there. But I want you to notice this morning that there is grace here. It is in the peripheral, but it's there and it's more than the peripheral. I think you'll see by the end of this that God's grace is amazing for every black spot of our lives. And we need to see it this morning. So look again at our text, chapter 12, starting at verse number 1. Nine months have passed. And it seems as if David has gotten away with this. Verse number 1, And the Lord, that is Yahweh, the self-existent one, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Now, you might not know but just this act of the Lord sending Nathan to David, listen to me, it is an act of grace. It's an act of grace because grace actively searches us out. The God of heaven is not a passive. Onlooker, He has not been unaware of David's life over the last nine months. He did know, he, he was aware, the thing displeased him, and grace comes after the sinner. It's an act of grace. He pursues. David may have been able to succeed in his unfaithfulness, and we do as well. you have got to be careful this morning. Our comparisons are often flawed. Terrible, David, your unfaithfulness. Yeah, but we succeed at our our unfaithfulness as well. But God will come after his own. C.S. Spurgeon said this, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. And it's an act of grace. Grace actively searches out. He is not a passive onlooker. And in the searching out, it is grace that acknowledges something's wrong. David displeased the Lord. And, and, and maybe during these nine months, he sort of just, hey, Kesarah, uh, I'm okay with this. I justified it. Um, I make excuses. I'm not thinking about it. I'm suppressing it now. But in an act of grace, God sends Nathan to him, and the grace is that David's sin will be exposed. Listen to me it is not gracious nor loving to ignore evil. Ever. And we have a real challenge in our world today, do we not? That our concept of love and truth is so skewed that we think what it means to love somebody is that no matter what you do, I support you. Really? Is that what love is, that no matter what you do? So you want to decide to go out and murder 150 people because I love you, I support you? Isn't that insane? And we, we have been deceived in our world today to believe that the most loving thing that anyone can do is just support you in your sin. And it is not. And then we're told that truth is hatred. If you tell someone the truth in our world today, you are a hate monger. You just hate people. And so, if you're truly loving and you're truthful in the process, the world views us as unloving and hateful. But my friend, that's not the case. Love and grace is greater than that. It does not excuse destructive behavior. It looks to confront and to expose. And it's not to confront and expose to humiliate and to embarrass and to say, I told you so. It is ultimately to confront and to expose because I love you, I love truth, and the plan is to get your life back where it belongs to experience the real shalom or peace of God in his creative order. That's the idea. And so this is a gracious act that God sends Nathan to David. It's an act of grace. He's going to expose his sin because he loves him too much to leave him there. And so Yahweh sends Nathan with a story. Everybody likes a story, right? I like a good story. David liked a good story. So here comes the story. And it's a story about a lamb. And how suitable and appropriate for the shepherd king to get a story about a lamb. David, right away, his attention would be piqued at this situation. He understands sheep. He understands flocks. He understands herds. But not only that, it's a story about Lambs and a lamb, and a rich guy and a poor guy. And David understood wealth. He's a king now. Everything's at his disposal. But he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He understands poverty. Certainly, understand. David would have understood what it meant to have more month than check. Been there? <laughs> Do without. Run for your life for ten years? Have everything taken from you? David understands it, and probably better understanding the poverty than the wealth. And so it's like, oh, good, I love a story. Nathan, what is it? I can't wait to hear the situation. So Nathan begins. There was a rich man. Okay? The rich man had, the word is, exceeding many. It has the idea of obnoxious abundance. So here's this rich guy. And in Bible times, right, cattle, sheep, that was a sign of wealth. You didn't have a bunch of dollar bills stashed in the bank. You had livestock. And this guy has so much livestock that it is obnoxious in its abundance. He doesn't even know how many he has. He's rich. He's got so many lambs. He did not know how many he has. And there's this poor guy. And he's got nothing, I mean nothing he, he has one lamb and you pet people will understand this I can't comprehend this but the, the lamb eats at his table, sleeps in his bed, I mean he, he nourishes it it's like a family member to him It's all he's got and he loves it and along comes a traveler to the rich guy And he has this insatiable appetite. And the rich guy says, no problem. I got got so many sheep, I I can't even number them. But there's this poor guy, my neighbor, and he's pretty close to the house, maybe a block or two away. Let's just grab his lamb, and we'll kill it and dress it, and we'll eat his lamb. And so they do. And and the, the... Poor has his lamb taken away, and the, the, the traveler is satisfied by the poor man's lamb. And that's the end of the story. And David hears it, and he is outraged. This is so unjust. How in the world, Nathan, does this happen in my kingdom that this rich guy who had everything would take this poor man's little lamb? He he is so incensed by this that he exaggerates the crime and the punishment. In in Jewish economy during this time, it was a crime to steal steal an animal. And the, the, the punishment was not capital punishment. It was to restore it four times. So if you took a guy's lamb and they caught you, you had to give back four of those, which is really a cool system. We might want to do that and cut down on our thievery in our country. I wish the guy who robbed our house would have to give back four times. I'd be a very happy man. And that's the way it was. But it wasn't death. And David says, This guy is going to give back four times. He is going to die. And look why he's going to die. Verse number six. Going on, verse number six at the end. Because he had no pity. This guy's going to die because he is cruel. He is heartless. How could you take this man's only lamb when you had everything? Nathan sits and listens. And unbeknownst to David, he has just judged himself. I love what Alexander White says about this text. He says that Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience, before David ever knew that Nathan had a sword. And all he has to do is ID him. And, and I don't know how it was said. I don't know that it matters how it was said. I don't know if he thundered it, if he whispered in it, if he pointed it in his face. But now Nathan just has to ID the man. And he says, David, you're the man. You are the man. You are the rich man who had everything an exceeding abundance, exceeding many, obnoxious abundance, and you chose to take that poor man's one and only wife. And David's heart sinks because he's busted. It's exposed. God had known, God does know, and now he's exposed. But David continues to hear the message from Nathan. And now Nathan calls David's attention to God's grace. Look at verse number 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. We talked about this last week, but it's worth repeating. He goes now through a list and says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. And he goes on and on. I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave. And David, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you such and such. I would have added more. But it wasn't enough for you, David. You weren't satisfied with my grace and my goodness. You needed more. And in this rebuke, it is a reminder to David of God's grace, all the good that God had done for him. It's listed. David, listen to me. You're the man. You've sinned against God. And and look at all the good that God has done for you. A reminder of grace. Now, this morning you're hearing you say, hey, Rick, that's great. I'm not a king. I don't have everything. And so I do have some things, but, but certainly not to the extent of David. I beg to differ with you this morning, brother and sister in Christ. Do you want to hear how good God's grace is to you this morning? I think the songwriter has it right. When he says, "I once was lost in darkest nights, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still, but as I ran, my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state. And led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. I'm telling you this morning, brother or sister in Christ, God has been better to you than you could ever imagine. And in this grace, he has given you everything. Everything. For all eternity, we will try to figure out why in the world he ever loved me. Whoever loved you. We need to be reminded of God's grace. It truly is amazing. And it, the reminder of grace is in all the good that God had done. So, so salvation is it. If you got salvation this morning, you've got it all. You have got it all, because it means you're reconciled back to God, your sins have been washed clean, you have a perfect standing in Jesus Christ today, and you are now part of his family. And as a joint heir of Jesus Christ, someday you will inherit everything. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And then, the goodness of the gifts you do have, can I tell you something this morning? Every good gift that you have this morning, it comes from above. You're breathing this morning? Some of you I'm not sure about right now, but but if you're breathing this morning and have life, it's a gift. You've got a good relationship, you have friendship, you have a marriage, you have children, you have grandchildren, you have a gift. You have a good church, you have a gift. And all the other stuff that we have and enjoy, they're all gifts. And so Nathan says, David, you've blown it. Your sin's exposed. I need to remind you of God's grace, how good he has been. And I want to remind you not only of the good that he has done, but David, I want to remind you of the good that he is. Do you know why God is gracious to us this morning? It's his very nature. It doesn't make sense, really. It is his very nature. God shows grace because he is gracious. We sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The fountain of every blessing is the person of our God. And every good gift that we could ever imagine flows from his person. He is good. Is it any wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 16, 11, a great verse. It says, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In his presence. And Nathan says to David, you've despised God. And God is good. He is good. My brother and sister, listen to me this morning. When we forget about the grace of God and the good that He has done and the good that he, is, that he is, we are steps away from making decisions like David made because we've despised His grace that will jeopardize our families, our relationships, our careers, and our very life. Because what has happened is this: we have believed the oldest lie of humanity that says God's not good. Matter of fact, not only is he not good, but God is trying to withhold good from you. And if you would just slake your desire or appetite on whatever you want, you would find out how good it is and what God has been holding back from you. And my friend, do not believe the devil's lie. I could have scores of testimonies this morning and say, Listen, I thought God wasn't good. I went here and you know what I found? It was a mouthful of sand. And it never satisfied. And it never will, because it can't. Because the fullness of joy is found in his presence. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so, Nathan continues now. And I want you to see that grace is outraged by sin. To appreciate true grace, we have to see, as the Puritan said, the sinfulness of sin. And in verse 9, back in our text, Nathan has just reviewed God's grace for David. And in in verse number nine, he says, in, in, in effect, after all of this, David, God says, how could you do this? How could you do this? It's even more powerful, we consider David's response to the story. David understood that this act was unjust. It was heartless. It was cruel. It was pitiless. And he is thrown into moral outrage at how anyone who had all this stuff could do these things. Are not we thrown into moral outrage about everyone else's sin? I am. I have to tell you something. I get angry and upset at cruelty, at injustice, unkindness, discrimination senseless death and destruction. And grace does the same thing. David is outraged by this act. Now listen to me. If David is outraged by this sinfulness, and if we are outraged by sinfulness, usually everyone else is but our own, but that's another topic. How much more the holy God of heaven outraged after all the grace he has shown to this planet, and we despise that grace and sin against him. If you have ever wondered about God's attitude towards sin and wickedness, all you have to do is go to Calvary. And on Calvary's mountain, God's wrath against sin, all sin, your sin and my sin, is poured out on the head of Jesus Christ. Because he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, he is the fountain of goodness, but but sin will be dealt with. Forgiveness has to be absorbed, and it is absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you have life and you have breath and you've seen the goodness of God and you despise his son, after all of that grace, no wonder the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 says this, he says, How much sore punishment who trodden under feet the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Can you imagine? After all the goodness that God has shown you today, your life, your family, your health, being in a gospel preaching church, and saying, I don't care, the writer of Hebrews says, how much sore punishment that you are trampling under your feet the blood of Christ who died because of your sin. The Holy One became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made of the righteousness of God in him. What a, and then he goes on in verse 31. He says, um, it's a fearful thing to fall the hands of a living God. And so grace is that backdrop to say, look at God's goodness and look how wicked it is to despise that grace. My friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, you are despising God's grace. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But for the believer, how often we despise this grace and we forget what God has done. I love what Stephen Charnock has said. He's a Puritan. And he said, Can we take any pleasure in that which procured so much pain to our best friend? Can we love that which hath brought a curse better than him who bore the curse for us? And, And grace is always contrasted in the hatred of sin. Remember the old song? "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace is gracious because it shows me sin and its destructiveness. And Nathan shows this to David. He goes on and he talks about this whirlwind that's coming to David's life. And now in verse number 13, David confronted with this truth. He repents. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And for some of us, He's like, wait a minute, Dave. That's it? That, that's all you're going to say here? There, there's got to be more. But God knows the heart. There are no excuses. There's no blame game. Um, there's no justifying himself. He owns it. And God forgives him. We'll talk more about that next week. But there's still consequences for his actions. The child does die. God will cleanse us from our iniquity, but there oftentimes there are consequences. And in this portion, it just shows us the paradox of forgiveness Forgiveness. is free and yet costly. We'll see more of that next week. But let me finish now by, by seeing the intention of all this grace that God has bestowed upon David, even in the midst of this dark spot. Because it is dark, it is black. David and Bathsheba, the stain, the embarrassment, the guilt, all of it. But now they're exposed and they're confronted. And there seems to be a lifting now after the repentance. Look at verse number 24 if you would. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, which is unusual because he's been calling her Uriah's wife all this time. And at the end of the verse it says, They bear another son, and they name him Solomon. You know what Solomon means? It means peace. In the midst of all the chaos of this darkness in their life, in the midst of all the brokenness of of everybody in the pathway here, I mean, people crash and burn, life's overturned. In the midst of all of that darkness, God says, okay, you have another boy. And what do they name him? They name him Solomon, which is peace. Peace in the midst of the turmoil and all the pain. Now watch verse number 25. And I hope this strikes a chord with you because in verse number 25, and he... Sent. Okay, let's see how many folks are paying attention. You've been awake the whole time now. Who is the He of He sent? Look at verse 24. If you want to know, David says they have a son named Solomon, and God loved him. Verse 25 says, and He sent. Who is the He? It's Yahweh. Okay. Remember how we started? Yahweh sent to expose David's sin, an act of grace. Now we come to verse 25, and Yahweh sends Nathan again, but it is not to expose his sin. Now it is to express his love. And look what happens now. He sends Nathan and says, Nathan, you know that kid that they just had, Solomon, the peace one? Give him another name. Give him a second name. Call him Jedediah. You know what Jedediah means? The loved of the Lord. In all the darkness, in in all the stain, in all the big black spots of their lives, God says now, call this kid Jedediah. He is beloved of the Lord. This chapter is not to excuse the guilt of sin. It doesn't at all. Sin is exposed. It must be exposed. It's an act of love and grace. But what this chapter does do for us is it helps us to get beyond the despair of our sin. Can I tell you something this morning? We all have black spots. Every last one of us. We are broken people with broken lives. And if we're not careful, we become very myopic, and all we see is the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in everyone else's life. And can I tell you something? You're not designed to live that way. Nor can you. And because of his grace, you don't have to. You don't have to. We repent when it's exposed. We give ourselves before the Lord, and his grace is sufficient. And just in closing, if you doubt this, Matthew chapter 1, verse number 6. Because the story is not over. This isn't the end of the story of David. It's not the end of the story of Bathsheba. It is not the end of the story of Solomon. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 6. Do I have it up there? If I don't, turn there. It's worth seeing. Matthew 1, verse number 6. Here's what it says. And Jesse begat David the king of And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. Only four. And they're all bad women. All of them. All of them are bad women. And there's something about the grace of God that he identifies with us, even in our brokenness. And here's Bathsheba, this dark stain. Bathsheba, how do you ever recover from this? Well, I'll tell you, the story's not done. You're in the line of Christ. In all the darkness, in all the brokenness, in all the pain, in all the suffering, you are in the line of Christ, and Solomon is heir to the king of kings and lord of lords. Listen to me. We, We do have black spots, do we not? They're there. But I want you to know something this morning. God's grace is greater than all of it. Than all of it. All of it. And this is the nature of our God that He, it's not the peripheral for Him. He sees the end from the beginning. He, he's not myopic. He, he doesn't have a black spot. He sees it all. He knows it all. And in spite of all of that, He still loves His children. And He can bring and will bring beauty from the end ashes every time. Every time. Your story's not finished, nor is mine. It's not finished because of grace. It will be sustained by grace, it will be written by grace, and someday it will be finished by grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And so the, the message this morning is this. Yeah, black spot, sure. How do you recover? You recover by grace. By grace. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.